If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Gawthorne. In the most familiar versions of Greek myths, the women who feature are often monstrous, vengeful or just plain evil. But in today's episode, you'll be hearing an alternative version of events from the writer and classicist Natalie Haynes. In this discussion around her latest book, Pandora's Jar, Natalie explains how, by looking at the many different versions of the mythology, the women who emerge present quite a different picture. Putting the questions to Natalie was our deputy digital editor, Eleanor Evans. It's really great to be chatting today about your new book, Pandora's Jar, in which you've looked at 10 women or um, probably should say 10 examples, uh, refocusing the stories in which women appear. Um, Often they're their own stories, the women at the very centre of the action, and they give us a pretty different look at the myths that we think might think we're pretty familiar with um and it's it's really fresh and it's a really great new picture of these mythological names and I, I hope to start with you could just say a little bit about the approach and why the approach to these myths is one that was so necessary 
Well, I kind of felt that this story had been, or well, yeah, all these stories had been either lost or distorted or forgotten, essentially, over a couple of millennia, which I suppose is a little bit of time. Um, and so often there were these stories which I felt that I knew really well because I'd been studying them since I was a teenager. And in some cases, I'd been rewriting them as a novelist, um, like the story of the the Royal House of Thebes, for example, which we tend to think of with the focus solely on Oedipus because he's the famous one out of Freud and so on. He's the one who gets his um, complex. And so that must be the only focal point. And it's fair to say that the version of his story that we have in Sophocles and Oedipus Tyrannus, Oedipus the King, is really focused on him. He is the the absolute main character. But when I wrote The Children of Jocasta a few years ago, and I started to kind of hunt around some other sources, fragments of Euripides' play, um, the the Euripides' play Phoenicians, the the fragments of his Antigone, uh, when I looked at the version that was in Homer, for example, in the Odyssey, um, Jocasta was a much a much more kind of major part of the of the whole. And then obviously I'd done that again with A Thousand Ships, where I'd reframed the Trojan War to, to tell the story of a whole epic from just women's perspectives, but loads of women, because I thought that would be a fun and interesting and not at all psychologically ruinous thing to do to myself. Um, and again, it was like, well, we only ever think of Helen as being Helen of Troy, but sometimes in a version at least as old as Homer, she goes to Egypt and not to Troy. She doesn't elope with Paris. It doesn't happen. And I thought, well, it's kind of strange that these versions of the stories have just been lost or just aren't talked about because there's a kind of, it happened to me over and over again when ships came out and when Jocasta came out, people asked me at live shows, what's the real version of the myth? And you're like, there isn't one. I don't know what to say to you. They're all retellings, even the ones that we think of as being authoritative that they're all retellings of an earlier story. They're, they're composites. You know, even Homer is retelling stories that already exist by the time he's composing them or writing them, depending on how you prefer to frame it. So I thought, well, that was the that was the 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 kind of impetus for writing Pandora's Jar was that there were these stories that that people just didn't know about these characters that they sometimes did know. And and obviously the case in point was was the title character, was Pandora, who is by far the most famous thing about Pandora in our world is that she's got a box. In the ancient world, no box. Zero box. You know how many boxes she's got? None at all. Um, in every artistic representation of her from the ancient world, she is shown with no receptacle at all of any kind. She's shown in the act of being created. The important thing for the ancients is that she is our ancestor. She is the, before her, there aren't any women. And then there are women. So that's the thing that's important about her. Her being created is is part of our foundational myth as, as humans. And in some versions of her ancient story, she has a jar, which is given to her by Zeus via Hermes. In some versions, she doesn't. In some versions, the jar is full of bad things, in some versions, it's full of good things. In some versions, she opens it. In some versions, it's deliberate. In some versions, it's accidental. Sometimes her husband opens it. And yet somehow, all of that gets lost and she gets turned into villainous woman who deliberately opens box. And the box doesn't appear in her story until the 15th, 16th century when Erasmus translates her story. Um, and he takes the Greek word pithos, jar, and translates it as pyxis, box. And it sounds like a really small translation decision, but it has this enormous consequence. Within a couple of decades of that translation happening, we start to see artworks where instead of the, the art before that, Pandora is shown with a jar, 
suddenly we see her with this sort of strong box with big buckles on it. And it's like, you've got to really make an effort to open this up. And now she looks deliberate, vengeful. It's like, that's just not in the Greek. It's just not there. And so I felt like these women deserve to have a different version of their stories told or multiple other versions of their stories told. And I feel like we deserve to know more about them because it's so easy for people to make the assumption that the version of a story that we know is the only version there's ever been. And I think that's especially true with these kind of gendered issues where we kind of go, well, of course, Oedipus is the hero of the Oedipus saga. That's the only version I know. And therefore, that's the only version there is. And therefore, that must be how it always has been. But here's the thing, the Euripides play Phoenicians, which uh, Phoenician women, which is the, the contemporary, roughly contemporary, a little bit later, of Sophocles' play, then Oedipus is barely in it. He's locked up in a dungeon, pretty much, because he's embarrassing because of the whole incest thing. So his son's... His mum, Jocasta, is a sort of high-end diplomat. She doesn't die like she does in the Sophocles version. She doesn't hang herself. Sorry to spoil the play, but you have had two and a half thousand years to watch it. Um, She she carries on being queen, or at least being a sort of uh, queen mother figure, I suppose. So I thought, well... It's interesting, isn't it, that the versions of these stories we've lost are so often the ones where women have power or are sympathetic um, or um, are just basically more interesting than those sort of Hollywood wives in 90s action films who who go, oh, but be careful to a man while he has an adventure. Um, And so I thought those stories needed to be told, retold. Retold, definitely. Yeah, so many retellings. And and that's uh, just an absolutely fascinating um, thing to be doing. But I wonder if we could pick up on that issue of translation, because I I found this so fascinating when you share a few examples of where the language is gendered and then the act of mistranslation, whether that's intentional or otherwise, lends an entirely different picture again to that woman. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the the most egregious example, perhaps, is one that was highlighted incredibly brilliantly by Emily Wilson in her recent translation of The Odyssey, which I just can't recommend enough. If you're looking, people ask me all the time for translations. I say to you, Emily Wilson's translation of The Odyssey is wonderful. Um, and uh, Odysseus's homecoming, which takes a lot more of the book than, than we ever think of, or the poem that we ever think of. He gets back to Ithaca in uh, book 16, book 17. There's another eight books to go. What's he going to do? Kill everyone is the answer uh, for ages um, and hang out with some pigs briefly. Um, and uh, in this big kind of killing spree that happens when he returns, he and his son Telemachus kill uh, over 100 suitors um, who have been pestering his wife Penelope. And they also kill, They uh, Telemachus hangs from a single length of rope in one of the most kind of casually brutal moments in the whole Odyssey, which is saying something because it's not short of, of brutal episodes. He hangs from one length of rope the slave women who have, as they perceive it, conspired with the suitors um, against their household, against Penelope. And here's the thing. Um, those slave women ha- are slaves. They don't have any any rights. They don't get to say no. If if men who are citizens of, of Ithaca come into the palace and demand things from them, um, they, they don't have the option of going, oh, no, thanks, I don't want to. Um, they're slaves. That's how slavery works. So there's that. Um, the issue of, of responsibility or culpability, I suppose, is there right from the outset. But over and over again in translations, and Emily Wilson notes this in her introduction, which again is, is tremendous, in the Greek, um, it just says the word the, which uh, nouns and uh, articles um, take a gender in Greek because it's not hard enough. So um, it says the female slaves in Greek. That's it. The word the is feminine. The word slave has a feminine ending. So you know that it means the women. 
Um, and that's it. The word slave is the only word that's used. And I reviewed Emily's translation when it came out. And I found, I think, five or six lurking around the house or on the internet, earlier translations of the Odyssey. And over and over again, these translators had said, you know, these sluts, slattens, husses. And it's like, that's not in the Greek. It's just not in the Greek. And yet, interestingly, um, when Emily took, stripped that modern misogyny, as it were, I mean, obviously I'm talking about the last 150, 200 years, which is modern to classicists. Um, When you strip that modern misogyny back and take it back to the Greek and just say these slave women, um, you know, it was incredibly interesting to see people kind of push back against that and go, how dare she kind of rewrite Homer? And you're like, no, mate, you're going to have to take a minute. Homer isn't the version in English you read at prep school. I think if you check, you'll find it's actually in Greek. You're going to be astonished. And so stripping away that much more modern, I'm not saying there isn't misogyny in the ancient world. There's stacks of it. It's got plenty of its own. But often these stories change because of a much more modern misogyny or a more modern failure to acknowledge the characters of women in stories who are uh, often a much more major role in, in ancient versions. Right. And I think it, what was so fascinating is that this, you know, this isn't just um, this mistranslation, uh, intentional or otherwise, isn't the only way that happens. You know, there's more, much more intentional, creative ways of doing it. You, you you mentioned Marlowe's Helen, the face that launched a thousand ships, but doesn't do much else. Um, so, and that's obviously a, that's completely a choice, right? Yes, of course. And the thing is, it's, it's kind of extra frustrating because, for Euripides, who writes three versions of Helen, she's an incredible character. He does, he has a, an unbelievably kind of smart, funny, clever, cute, interesting, you would want to hang out with her version in his play, Helen. Um, and my favourite is the version that we see in the Trojan Women, where she is mad litigious. <laughs> and we get this, we meet her um, when Hecabe, who is the queen of the fallen city of Troy, Uh, Sometimes people call her Hecuba, which is the Latin version of her name. Um, She says to Menelaus, who is the husband of, uh, the Greek husband of Helen before Helen uh, leaves him, in this version of her story, leaves him for Paris. Um, And they're about to be reunited. And Hecuba says, I'll praise you, Menelaus, if you kill your wife. And and then Helen walks on stage. That's quite a bracing way to introduce a character anyway. Um, And Helen discovers within seconds of walking on stage that she has basically been tried in her absence by the Greek army and found guilty of starting the war and sentenced to death. And so she proceeds to deliver the defence she wasn't allowed to deliver in front of, of a jury, as it were. And it's an absolutely magnificent demolition job of every argument anyone could put up against her. In the end, Euripides is so smart. He doesn't even let Menelaus reply to her because there's no version of Menelaus in, in any form, in poetry and plays and where he looks smart enough to take this woman on, this version of Helen on. So Euripides has Hecabe square up to her and, and reply. And even Hecabe, who is smart and vengeful and unpleasant in every regard, even she can't really best a bunch of the arguments that Helen puts together, where Helen says, you know, I kept trying to escape from Troy and you, you know, I was married by force. Bia is the Greek, a forced marriage. You know, this isn't uh, the sort of adulteress that we're accustomed to see. This is a woman who's been, who's been forced into a marriage she didn't want. So, you know, it's, it is really interesting when we go back and, and look at these versions of these women, that there's just a much more nuanced picture or a set of nuanced pictures available to us. So when we look at those versions of Helen, 
and decide instead to, for example, stage Marlowe, um, where she says literally not a single word, then we're making that choice. Marlowe made the choice in his turn, but we're making the choice now. We don't have to, you know, pretend that Marlowe is the only type of theatre that exists. It's clearly not true. So I don't always understand why people are so keen to kind of restage versions of plays where women are basically mute or actually mute and and disregard versions uh, of these stories where women get to say and do a great deal more. Mm. Well, I, I think um, the idea you mentioned, and if I am saying too much about the book, please stop me. But um, No, you can't I, say too much about the book. That's the right thing. <laughs> Wonderful. Um, well, you mentioned Jocasta in your first answer, and I love this idea that she's essentially you know, ignored out of the, the Oedipus story because she can't be explained because she's a woman who's both old enough to be a grown man's mother and desirable, not invisible. This idea that um, she can't be explained by the men who are writing about her. So therefore she's just left out. Um, and do you think that's still the case with some of these women today? Yes, often I think it's the case. And it's intensely frustrating because I genuinely believe it when, for example, um, theatres tell us that they're trying to, you know, rebalance their canon so that they have more plays with women at the centre, more plays written by women, more plays directed by women, more plays starring women. It's like, they're right here. (laughs) They're right here. You know, women translate plays. That happens. I've seen it happen. I've even done it myself. So that's not a problem. Yes, okay, of course, you can argue that patriarchy and and ancient misogyny is, is baked in to all these ancient plays. And that is true. That's true of all plays that have ever been written, have been written under a patriarchal system somewhere or other. So let's get past that. And, you know, why Why would any woman who is performing at the top of her game want to play Lady Macbeth instead of Medea? There is no reason for it at all. You get fewer lines. You don't get the lead character. It's, it's just, it, it baffles me. It just baffles me. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I just found it extraordinary that this idea that this woman could do something so deviant, so transgressive as to unmake herself as a mother um, by killing her children. Um, she does it in this, she, she commits multiple murders in her play. I really am spoiling this for you entirely. I'm so sorry. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest, whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi Strawberry slid right into my Taste Buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Can we talk a bit more about uh, Medea then? Because this idea of the woman scorned. So, yeah, I think, I mean, I'm slightly obsessed with Medea. I've been writing about her since I was 16, 17. Um, It was one of the first Greek plays I read in Greek. Um, It was probably one of the first Greek plays I read in English, actually, now I think about it. I think it was the first, if if, if not one of the first, then it may may even have been the actual first uh, play I ever, Greek play I ever saw staged. I saw it with Diana Rigg. Um, my dad drove me down to London specially to see her because he had such a crush on her from the Avengers because he's not an idiot. Um, and I just found it extraordinary that this idea that this woman could do something so deviant, so transgressive as to unmake herself as a mother um, by killing her children. Um, she does it in this, she she commits multiple murders in her play. I really am spoiling this for you entirely. I'm so sorry. Um, but it's what's interesting about her is that she defies gender archetypes so um, she commits her first murders at the play. Uh, she kills her husband, Jason's uh, fiancé slash new bride. The timing's a bit uh, blurred. Um, who It doesn't get a name in the play, but often she's called Glauke in other versions of the story. So let's go with that. Um, and Glauke and her father uh, are both killed by Medea using poison, which is a traditional, in terms of Greek myth, woman's weapon. That's how women generally kill in archetypal mythic terms. Um, And so as a sort of jealous wife, as a wronged wife, she behaves as an archetypal vengeful wife and uses poison to take out her, her rival. But when she comes to kill her children, which is the more extraordinary, more deviant act, I suppose, um, in the play, she uses a sword. She behaves like a man on a battlefield. Swords should never be available to you, for want of a better phrase, um, in the comfort of your own home. They're a battlefield thing. So um, it just seemed to me like a, a really interesting point to look at this this woman who kind of refuses to be just, just um, a murderer by poison. And instead, because, so she's, a, a, she's both a feminine and a masculine murderer uh, within the play. And, and how you kind of try to, if not justify, then at least understand the behaviour that she she portrays in that play because it is just one of the most remarkable plays easily my favorite play of all time in any language um and i kind of wanted people to know why um you you don't have to feel the same way as me but i wanted to be able to say this is an absolute masterpiece and every time it's say i must have seen it i don't know 30 times in greek and english set in the ancient world set in the modern world i it never ever gets old even when i was writing about it for pandora this play that I've been writing about now for 20-something, 25-something years, I was still finding out things I hadn't seen before. I was like, God, I wrote my dissertation on this. I should have noticed that a bit sooner. (laughs) Too late now. 
Well, you can share it with others now anyway, so that's... that's yeah, thankfully. Yeah, slightly more readers now than my dissertation had, so at least I've saved it for the big crowd, typical performer. Wonderful. Um, so you, there are clearly so many, um, not even retellings, but original sources that present nuanced versions of, of these characters, these women in mythology. Um, but they have they have been lost uh, these have they've fallen into these tropes that you've just mentioned um so you're obviously you're doing um a great radio show, show now Natalie Haynes stands up for the classics you're on season 6 um and you've you've been doing this series of social media videos of it not covid um which is just brilliant and i wonder <laughs> i i wondered in the making of all of this um what sort of reactions you've got to that um you mentioned someone saying you were rewriting Homer or someone was rewriting the Iliad. But that that notion, what can you say about those kind of reactions? Yeah, I'm quite lucky. I get very few of them, I suppose, because audiences are ultimately self-selecting. Um, and so I don't, I, I'm not on the receiving end of very much of that. How dare you? How could you? Um, so that, that makes things a lot easier. Uh, so mostly I get people going, I had no idea. That's so cool. I had no idea, which is, is obviously what you'd prefer. Um, Generally, it's one of those, and I'm sorry to say it because obviously, you know, they're often friends of mine in, an, in another guise, but generally it's a sort of cheap journalistic device, isn't it, to go, well, some people might say that you're rewriting history and you're like, oh, but some people might be bored by this question. Um, no interested face pretends to answer it for the eight millionth time in a row. Um, and so I, I, gen, I genuinely don't think very many readers, listeners, viewers um, come with the same set of preconceptions that are sort of you know, hurled at them and, and they're assumed to hold. I, th- I, I wish that everybody had access to um, classics at school so that they could have lazy preconceptions about the ancient world. But unfortunately, an enormous number of people don't get, the vast majority of people don't get to study classics at school at all. So for a huge percentage of my audience, um, my version of these stories is often the first version that they've heard. And It feels, I know this sounds a bit um, demented slash pompous, but it it makes it, it feels like a big responsibility. If you're the first thing that people are going to get of this, it's like, well, I'd better make it entertaining, but I can't, I can't make it entertaining at the expense of, of, of sort of some historical accuracy or some questions about historical accuracy and things like that. So yeah, I take it much more seriously than I probably need to, but that's very much in my nature. Well, entertaining it is, and and there's there's so many more preconceptions to be um, busted by this book. But if if you were, you you've mentioned Helen's um, smarts, her, her intellect, you've mentioned Pandora's jar. But if there's kind of one um, really uh, strong myth that just is enduring that you just would, would want our, want our listeners to understand about any of these women you've written about, what would that be? I think I would probably go with Clytemnestra. You know, I wrote that she gets a. A chapter in A Thousand Ships, um, which is as close to actual horror as I have ever written anything, I think, um, because uh, it's it's quite closely based on the Aeschylus play Agamemnon. And that is basically a horror story when uh, Robert Icke staged it incredibly brilliantly at the Almeida a few years ago. Um, he, he gave it a huge kind of over overlay of Japanese horror. Um, uh, it looked like the ring at times, this sort of terrifying, you know, long-haired girl whose face you can't quite see because of the lighting. It was absolutely extraordinary. Um, but, you know, that's not that's not his rewrite or my rewrite. It's in Aeschylus where Cassandra uh, comes on stage and she can see black furies dancing on the, on the roof of the house. I mean, that is a bit like the opening of It Follows, the horror movie. Um, and so I... I have always been really drawn to Clytemnestra and I really enjoyed writing her her chapter in Thousand Ships because she's so 
strong and angry and unsympathetic and yet therefore compelling. But when I wrote her chapter in Pandora um, and sort of wrote about her rather than wrote from her, you know, her, her perspective, it made me think of her even more sympathetically than I had before because we're we're definitely allowed to think of her as as villainous in Aeschylus, although it's a much more sympathetic portrait of her than uh, we'll find in later sources. She does, after all, kill her husband with either a sword or an axe. So she is quite she is quite a bad wife, as wives go. Um, and Agamemnon is still moaning about this from beyond the grave, I might add, in the Odyssey. So, you know, he doesn't take it particularly well. But the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, you know, he has, he has killed their daughter um, before he goes away to war. He's killed their, their daughter, Iphigenia. And nobody's ever angry about that except Clytemnestra. At the very beginning of the Agamemnon, the Aeschylus play, uh, the chorus, who are old men, too old to have sailed away uh, with Agamemnon to Troy, they all sort of say, oh, this terrible thing happened and blah, blah, blah. So it's, it's, it's near the forefront of their mind, but they don't seem to have any sense of it being an injustice that needs to be avenged, which is very much how they feel later in the play when Agamemnon has been killed. And and Clytemnestra, you know, Aeschylus writes this. This isn't me. This isn't my revision. This is two and a half thousand years old. Aeschylus has Clytemnestra say, well, why didn't you make such a big fuss about Iphigenia being killed? You know, why why is it so important to you that I've killed the king? But you didn't care when he killed his daughter. And and that seems to me still now, having written that chapter, having fictionalised her in ships, having written about her more kind of critically and analytically in Pandora, I'm I'm not going to lie to you, I still don't have an answer to that question, except that I think perhaps Clytemnestra is um, a a champion for overlooked teenage girls, um, at least to me as much as she is a bad wife. Uh, I'm sure she is a bad wife. Agamemnon really does have quite a bit to complain about, but rest assured he will. Um, But it seems to me that nobody else ever speaks up for Iphigenia except her, and there's something to be said for that. I think there's a there's a sort of nobility to the way that Clytemnestra nurses her vengeance. And again, it's not something that we like to think of today. Today, we like people to forgive. and Or, you know, if they can't forget, then at least to forgive. We want those kinds of values in our world. And I agree with it. I admire it. But I don't really understand it. When somebody appears on the news and says they forgive the killer of this person or that person who was close to them, I don't really understand how they say that or think it. I admire them beyond imagining but I don't understand how they do it. For me, Clytemnestra's behaviour, although I see it as a societal level, is infinitely less good. It makes more sense to me. Mm-hmm. So the understanding on the human level, it's just this this approach, this um, approach in the round of all of these retellings, it's really making these women obviously weren't human, they're in a mythological sense, but that, that empathy, that humanity is um, much easier to access. Yeah, I really think so. I think these these women did have those kinds of um, facets to their characters. And if you look at multiple versions of their stories and put them all together, it's like, oh, she's, you know, Clytemnestra is this fiercely ambitious political leader. You know, that's what's transgressive about her. Oh, no, she kills her husband. That's what's transgressive about her. Oh, no, she cares about her dead daughter. That's what's transgressive about her. Oh, she has an affair with a man. That's what's transgressive. Oh, she picks her husband's great enemy to have an affair. And so there's all these, it's like, what's wrong with Clytemnestra could equally well have been the title of this book. (laughs) It wouldn't have been any less accurate. And in the end, I kind of looked at it and thought, you know what? I'm not sure there's anything wrong with Clytemnestra. <laughs> it's like, there it is, just coming out and saying it. 
<laughs> and so we've got Pandora's Jar. Yes, so we ended up with Pandora's Jar. It was an irresistible title once I thought of it. I thought, well, it's one of those things that hopefully will kind of stick in people's minds. I hope they'll sort of stumble over and go, no, it's Pandora's... Wait, what? And then hopefully... <laughs> Uh, yeah. And also it meant I got to quote Aerosmith in that chapter, I think, because of uh, their splendid former work singing about Pandora's box, which, uh, yeah, is in every regard a euphemism. That was Natalie Haynes. Pandora's Jar, Women in the Greek Myths. It's published by Picador and is available now. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for a debate on the biggest historical headlines of 2020.